morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be together with you. Can we open to Psalm 73? I want to get right into the word. I want to unpack something that's been growing in my own heart. And I believe that the Lord wants us to hear. If you're a note taker and you like to have a title, I almost never give titles, but for this one, the title is Psalm 73, Watch Your Mouth. You can put a little bit of attitude in that later too, if you want to say somebody, watch your mouth. Psalm 73, which is a Psalm of Asaph. Actually the first of the Asaphs, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Let the word soak us in. Soak in the word here. Asaph cries out to the Lord. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, and loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. All was at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I if I had said thus, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May the Lord add a blessing to his word. I like Asaph. This has always been my, this has been my favorite psalm for years. Now it's usually dangerous to give a preacher the opportunity to preach on his favorite passage because usually ride, theologically you ride your own hobby horse through it and put it whatever interpretation you want. But this has caused me, when I've recently translated this, from directly from the Hebrew into Berber, I had a bunch of insights that made me reappreciate, do a deep dive into many of the aspects of this particular psalm, which confirmed to my heart that this still is my favorite psalm. Truth be told, every psalm that I translate, I'm up to Psalm 83 now, plus, plus Psalm 133. Every psalm that I translate becomes my new psalm <laughs> because I get to live in it for a while. I get to imagine what it is because I'm not only doing a translation, but perhaps if you've been staying in tune with some of our email updates, I have been writing a film project called Psalm Stories to tell the stories of the psalms. And there is a story behind this psalm of Asaph. And this, as I translated it and write screenplay for it, it forced me to look again at what this psalm really means and why it is so deep a passion for me as I just read it here, because it impacts me. I want to share a little bit of that with you. The Psalm of Asaph. This is the first of the book in the book three of the Psalms. There are five books of the Psalms They're called the Pentateuch of the Psalms for those of you familiar with some theology. But point is that there are different themes in the books. And one of the main themes of this midsection here of the Psalms of David, the Psalms of Asaph is a transmission of the good news of the faith from one generation to another. The Hebrew expression used over and over throughout this section of the Psalms 
of these number of different psalms is dor vador. It's generation to generation. It appears here again in Psalm 73. I'll get that, that a little later. But Asaph, as I've come to understand him, is an, an older man. He's a contemporary of David. In fact, it's very likely that he was one of the worship leaders uh, during the time of the tabernacle. This is before the temple is built. There's another Asaph that writes psalms also that uh, is during the time after the temple, having been built, has been destroyed. And he has his own set of problems that he brings before the Lord. But here is Asaph. He's a cranky old man at the end of his life, and he sure sounds and thinks a lot like me. Asaph's got a problem. I think many of us have it as well. He starts out with, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Does this come off of here? Yeah. Oh, good. Sorry for the bumps. This sounds a whole lot to me like Teviev in The Fiddler on the Roof. Teviev, you know, is the father of daughters, five daughters, and he's marrying them off one by one. His main struggle, though, is that tradition is being lost. And so Teviev, the father, is always speaking about tradition. He's trying to make sense of the world. He's trying to stay on the roof and not fall off of it. He's trying to maintain his faith and sanity. Asaph is trying to do the same. I'm trying to do the same. This psalm, like a few other psalms that have been translated so far, start out with a statement of faith. They start out with a declaration which is actually the conclusion of the psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Why is he so emphatic and so passionate about this declaration? Because the major issue here is God good. C.S. Lewis years ago wrote a, a book, and might be an allegory, God in the Dock. In this story, God is on trial. God is in the dock, he's in the witness stand. And he's on trial because there have been accusations against God that God is not good. I'll let you read C.S. Lewis's book for yourself. But is God good? Asaph declares him to be so, but he says, but, ah, you get to the second verse here, is, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's not so sure about God being good because he's lived real life. Asaph's got a good bead on reality. Some people would say that Asaph has a well, good BS meter. He sees what he sees 
And what he sees, he doesn't like. And he takes his complaint to God. He was envious of the arrogant. And he then details in the next section what the wicked, what the bad guys are doing that bothers him, that makes him think about chucking his faith and going off and being with them. He goes in a very Semitic Hebrew style of exaggeration. For they have no pangs until death. The wicked have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He sees people around him that are prosperous. Got the premium Cadillac health insurance. They get the care. Other people take a number. He's sick of it. He's sick of the injustices that he sees around him. He says, they're always healthy, fat and sleek. Well, that's an exaggeration, of course. You go down the chop, sitting there for a little bit with some parents. You see there's parents that are poor that have the child who's terrible pain and going through treatments. Right next to them across in the waiting room is a well-affluent family that's distraught as well over their own child's sickness. But for Asaph, he sees generally, though, that, well, the wicked don't seem to have the troubles that we do. What's the matter with this? Verse 6, then. And he sees in his society, then, it has here in, in the English, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Now, I looked at this and said, wait a minute, the Hebrew is different here. In the Hebrew, it says, therefore her necklace, she wears, she wears the pride necklace, he puts on a violent garment. He, she, and he. As an aspiring filmmaker, I'm writing, how am I going to put, portray this in the film? Have a woman then with a bead necklace around her, maybe some rainbow colored beads. Pride. Vanity. He sees vanity. Pride. Pride parades. And him covers himself with violence as a garment. Man with wrapping a dark cloak around him, preparing for to knife somebody in secret. Think of all the violence done by men against women. Under my thumb, girl who once pushed me around. Got some of these stones 
lyrics in the back of your mind, oppression, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, verse 9, and their tongue struts through the earth. Turn on the news. Here's another politician making another promise that happy days are here again. We will control this. We will do that. We will change and save the world, the planet, the... Their tongue struts through the earth. Hebrew image of conquering with your mouth, with through boasts. And verse 10, wow, this is the one that, that kicks Asaph in the you-know-where. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. The arrogant, the proud, the violent, the ones who are amassing the wealth. Well, there's great envy and people follow their example. The kid on the corner sees the drug thug making the money. He's got the bling. He's got the ladies. I want to be like him. And they go and they do just what he's doing. The girls, it's just, well, you listen to them. Girls just got to have fun. And so they go off and have fun with the girls. Nasaf sees this and it bothers him. And he takes his complaint to God. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, in riches. And then Asaph pauses and, and takes a little inventory, and he makes a conclusion to himself, what? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Why, oh why, am I knocking myself out? to try to be a holy man in an unholy world. I'm trying my best. I'm trying to do my best. Set an example. Going over to the other side. Why am I knocking myself out for nothing? And every once in a while, if you'll be honest with yourself, you say to myself, why am I doing this? Why do I keep doing this? But he catches himself. He says, all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It sounds like Asaph has been listening to the 24-hour news cycle. We have as well. And it enrages us. The more information we get, the more outrages we see against the Lord God. And it can bother you. And bother you and bother you. Hit every hour on the hour. But then he catches himself in verse 15 and says, If I had said I will speak thus, if I let it rip and talk about this out loud, that I'm going to give up all in vain, 
what would happen? He said, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Watch your mouth. Because what you say influences people around you. If you're an older grandfather like myself, you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you have a sphere of influence, and they're listening, and they're watching. Not just the things that you say, but the things you post online. Not just the things you say to your children and grandchildren, but what they overhear you say. I'm caught every once in a while. Woo, I got to make sure what I say when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated, when I see the way that the world is going, I've got to watch my mouth. We all have a sphere of influence. What you post on your social media posts, watch your mouth. What you say under your breath, watch your mouth. Because what will happen, you can betray the generation of your children. And this happens a whole lot. Perhaps you're familiar with the new term exvangelical. People who were evangelicals, who believed in the Bible, who believed in morality, believed in living a holy and upright life, but then something happens where they abandon their faith. And as they abandon their faith, they don't just go quietly. They slam the door on the way out. Post on and say, well, the, all that I've been living, all the hypocrisy that I've seen, everything I've been keeping inside, well, I've had it. I'm no longer a Christian. I'm an ex-evangelical. And it destroys the faith of those, especially Christian music pop stars and influential preachers who go off the rails can destroy the faith of others even more so. And it frightens me. And it frightens me to see that happen. Oh, they have such a loving relationship, better than any other heterosexual couple I've ever seen. It must be okay to have the same-sex marriage. And why don't evangelicals get on board with that? God is a God of love. You can see a lot of other bad things that happen in the world. Church history is rife with hypocrisy. Once had a, a young Muslim man come up to me um, where we were in North Africa, and he told me, because I had gotten a chance to share a little bit of the good news with him about Jesus, he says, yes, I want to become a Christian. So, oh, that's great. Well, why do you want to become a Christian? He says, well, because I'm sick of the hypocrisy of Islam. I'm sick of the hypocrites. So that you, well, then you don't want to become a Christian. You better follow Jesus instead. I'm trying to follow Jesus, I told him. And sometimes I'm a real hypocrite too. You hang around me long enough and you'll find out that's true. 
And he's like, huh. Not sure what happened to that guy. Oh, but when I thought how to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It can really wear you down trying to figure it all out. I guess some people have the gift of being able to shrug it off and say, oh, well, I'll just believe in Jesus anyway, and they happily go along. But not Asaph, not me, not the brother back there that's shaking his head. Yeah. It bothers you when you see injustice. It bothers you when you see hypocrisy. It bothers you when you see evangelicals bad-mouthing the faith on their way out. It was a wearisome task to him until. Ah, now, here it gets to the place here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. What does Asaph see? Aaron, could you cue up the slide? Asaph apparently was a worship leader. And every day on his way to work, he had to go to the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. That's that uh, place, the holy place, holy of holies, outer court. That's a depiction of the tabernacle before the temple was built in Jerusalem. Established by the Mosaic law, pattern was made. And you see in the very front there are red curtains, which are the gate. So when Asaph is grumbling on his way in to the tabernacle about oh, the wicked getting away with it and all the thing going on, then he, then he comes through those red curtains. And what's the first thing that he sees? He sees the brazen altar, the altar made out of bronze. He says, surely, then he realizes the end of the wicked. What does he see there? Well, when he goes in and he sees the altar there, you see, this is the place of the sacrifice where animals are slaughtered. Their throats are cut and the place is a bloody mess. After having their throats slit and blood slipping all over the place, then the animals are tossed on top of the burning altar where they're consumed whole by fire. Asaph starts the psalm with a declaration. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Then he has a time where he explains his consternation. But the wicked are getting away with it. Why? Then after his declaration, after his consternation, then Asaph re reaches a realization. He has a realization then. The wicked are going to be slaughtered and burned. When we first went to North Africa, uh, we took lots of pictures of the holidays in North Africa where animals were slaughtered. They were then eaten. 
But when they were slaughtered, it was a bloody mess. The men who were due to the slaughtering wore tall, white, rubber boots because of the sloppery gore that was on the threshing room area where the sheep, bulls, sometimes camels were sacrificed. We took pictures of this and because we saw in it, here is the Lamb of God who sacrificed. This is Jesus who gave himself. We saw in the blood there shed an opportunity to build a bridge of understanding, a witness. This is the Lamb of God. But when we took pictures of this and showed slides of it, it grossed people out. They said, bah, we can't take it. So we, we stopped doing slides. But here's the realization that Asaph has, is that God is a just God, and he will slay the wicked. They're suddenly swept away by terrors. In North Africa, when the sheep was led up to the place where they were going to cut its throat, it went, Aah. it had no idea what was about to happen to it. It had just been grass-fed. They, they bought little bundles of hay to feed and fatten up the little sheep before it. And so life was sweet. And little children would pet the, pet the sheep there at home. And, bah! and then and blood spurting out of its jugular. Swept away suddenly by terrors. This is what's going to happen. It may, take, it may take some of you a little bit to get, get your head around this. To say, how could a loving God punish the wicked in this way? Well, he does. So get over it and get, have your own realization. Go to God and say, God, I'm having a hard time with this one. And you, like Asaph, will have to call out to God. Perhaps he'll give you a realization. Then Asaph has another realization about the way that he's been. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. There's another reason why I really identify with Asaph. Yeah. Man comes home from work and his wife meets him at the door. Hi, honey, how are you doing today? How was your day today? Oh, did you have a hard day at work? Oh, dear, can I make you a sandwich and bring you a cold beer? Has all this inside. I know a lot of, I know a lot of men, including myself, who have a lot of the grumbly things going on inside and you don't say out loud because you're trying to work them out and making like a brute beast. Asaph has another realization. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Verse 23, you hold my right hand. God's not going anywhere. He's standing right next to you. 
If you are grumbling and complaining, have a beef with God, the way that he's running the universe, having a hard time choking down the realities of the injustices that you're going through and see it in society and, and the boasts on the YouTube channel. He's right there with you. He's holding your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Ah, he sits, stands there quietly with us until we calm down. And then he speaks to us. He guides us with his counsel. And afterward, he says, you will receive me to glory. We get to be with God forever. When we see the face of God, will we need to ask any questions? Are there any other questions? You know, you see the glory of God. You see the justice of God. You see God work all things out as the kingdom comes. The new heavens and new earth come and establish justice, righteousness with King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who's conquered and rights every wrong and brings in and ushers his kingdom of shalom. It takes faith, though, between now and then, when it doesn't seem like God is active at all in righting many wrongs, at least the ones that we like to see done. And he has this, then he sings to the Lord, because by the way, too, psalms are all songs. They're all poetry songs. Perhaps you remember this chorus from a long time ago. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And beside me thee I desire. Nothing on earth, my heart and my flesh, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever and ever. Amen. Anybody ever remember that song from a long time ago? I see a couple of hands. Yeah. Whom have I in heaven but you? My heart and my flesh, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I was to do a little bit of a paraphrase now, my version of it. I might give up and I might give in, but God, you never give out on me. I might give up. It's done with this stuff. I might give in to temptation. I might decide to quit, but God doesn't quit on us. He stays with us, comforts us. He'll walk us through it. God is strong enough to take your complaint. If you've got a beef with God, go to him. Instead of ruining the people around you, the young people in your sphere of influence, as you're working this out, don't be talking about these things to those who are vulnerable and impressionable because whose faith can be destroyed. Now, is this a gag order? Just be quiet and sit down there and, and put your tithe in the offering plate. No. 
This is why this, this is a 3,000 year old poem that survived many reprintings. It's because it means the same over and over and over again is that we can go to God with our complaint and we have the company of others. We have you're, you're the elders that you have here, competent people, women of God, mature in their faith. You've got problems, work it out with God, work it out with your brothers who are mature and competent, your sisters who can walk things through, through you, through, work things with you. But whatever you do, watch your mouth. Don't destroy the faith of others while you're at it. For behold, and he concludes here, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Yeah, judgment's coming. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. The wicked are going to get it. And he concludes, but for me, it is good to be near God. Cozy up to God. Draw close to the Father in prayer. Say, Father, I've had it. This bothers me. Ah, that candidate just said they were going to do what? Father, you know that that guy can't do that. Give them the common sense and the, that, you've, that you've given as a part of common grace and guide their paths and help me, Lord, not to say things that are, uh, are going to destroy your glory by insulting others around me. Help me, God, to respond in the right way. Being in a conversation with God, it's good to be near God. More and more, I'm finding that in my own prayer life has been transformed into a laundry list of things that I tell God that I want into a time where I wake up in the morning, I say, God, what do you want? How can I make you happy today? What do you want me to read? What do you want me to think? What do you want me to sing? What do you want me to say? And it gets a conversation going because then I have the comfort of God with me. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And he makes the conclusion. Instead of blasting off my mouth, it's going to destroy the faith of others and betray the generation of children. Instead, what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell of all your works. He's going to open his mouth. And he's going to speak of God's glory. What is he going to speak? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now here's a, this is a cyclical psalm. And there's a number of them too. That the first verse is the conclusion that they make at the end after their struggle. And so that you go through it over and over again. If you, when I have had a beef with God and I'm upset, and I give it over to him, and he gives me peace, and then I declare, the, well, then the next day, the news headline hits me, and the process starts all over again. It's not just one and done. If you've forgiven somebody, how many times do you have to forgive them? Yeah, sometimes every day, yeah. The resentment comes back up, but every time you do, resentment gets less because you're working it out with God. It's not one and done. 
did I really forgive the person? Yeah, well, declare with your mouth, yes, you purpose again. And the change that God brings is a good change, and he will, it will transform us. I want to end with, um, if, uh, Aaron, if you would put up the next slide. A little bit of a Hebrew lesson. This is the first verse of Psalm 73. And their Hebrew poetry kind of goes like this. It's Ah Tov Lisrael Elohim Livare Livav. That's a kind of a bad transliteration on the one side, but it, but it means basically, yes, God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. If you would sing this declaration together with me, I'll lead you in a little bit. Okay? So it's Ach tov Yisrael Elohim. I'll do that again. Ach tov. Can you say that? Ach tov. Now I want you to do two more things here. Is the first thing is to clap your hands on ach, ach, and then those of you who can stand and who want to, or you can sit there too, is then stomp your right foot with tov. Ach. Tov, okay? Ach, tov. Remember, this is a declaration by Asaph. Ach, tov, Yisrael, Elohim. We'll do that again. Ach, tov, Yisrael, Elohim. A third time. Ach, tov, Yisrael, Elohim. Livare, livav. Livare, livav. Can you sing that? Livare, livav. Livare, livav. Ach, tov, Israel, Elohim. Livare, livav. Livare, livav. Ach, tov, Israel, Elohim. Livare, livav. Livare, livav. Livare, livav. Thank you. Maybe Gretchen can get us to do a line dance.